Heavenly Father, as we uh, sit under your word this morning, help us to tune our ears and our eyes, our hearts and minds to you. Lord, pray that you would remind us of your goodness to us in Jesus, and Lord, keep growing us more and more uh, to serve you, to love you, uh, to be your holy people in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the final chapter of Nehemiah. Uh, we've been on a whirlwind journey of life for God's people returning from exile and returning back to Jerusalem. And just to remind you of what's happened so far in the past 10 or so weeks, uh, remember chapter 1 and 2, Nehemiah's heart broke for his city, seeing the walls in ruins and then he successfully requests to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. Then chapters 3 to 7, uh, we see the wall-building efforts, the highs, the lows, climaxing in this completion, but inglorious completion. The wall's finished, but opposition still continues, and the people are still small. Then we get to chapters 8 to 12, we see a change in focus from the wall to the people, uh, we see they return to God's word, they confess their sins, uh, they renew their covenant or their promise or agreement to live God's ways, and they end with this great celebration that we saw last week at the end of chapter 12. But as we come to Nehemiah's ending in chapter 13, let me ask you, is the ending positive or negative? Is it good or bad? We just heard it read just then. Is it triumphal or disappointing? Is it happy or sad? Is it a climax or an anti-climax? Is there certainty or uncertainty? How are we supposed to walk away from Nehemiah's writings? Well, why don't you think about this for a moment? If you're brave, maybe share what you think with the person beside you. How does Nehemiah end? Is it a happy, joyful, triumphal book? Or is it a sad, disappointing, uncertain book? How does Nehemiah end? Well, there's a few thoughts, there's a few whispers here and there. How does Nehemiah end? Well, historically, most would say that Nehemiah ends positively. The walls built, the people are renewed, and it's a triumphal high and celebrating this great leader of God's people. And when we think that, we often don't know what to do with today's chapter, chapter 13. I used to enjoy Nehemiah because I see a bit of myself and my own leadership style in him administrative kind of leader, but I never knew what to do with chapter 13. And to be honest, we don't even often touch chapter 13. And if the writing ended at chapter 12, it would have been a great high, but Nehemiah doesn't end it at the end of chapter 12. He keeps going to what we find here this morning. So keep that question in your minds, how does Nehemiah end? as we have a look at chapter 13 today. But before we do that, uh, we haven't heard from George for a while. 
Uh, George, if you haven't noticed, he's our doggo. Uh, he's a year and a half now. He's growing up. But whenever we think that George has grown up, George, he will do something that proves us wrong. For example, we thought George had settled on a food that he likes. He ate it for two, three weeks straight. We celebrated that he's not being fussy anymore. But guess what? We put breakfast out one day. He goes to it, he sniffs it, and then he walks away. We put dinner out. He does the same thing. He goes to it, sniffs it, and walks away. We thought George stopped grabbing stuff from the dining table. But guess what? We get home one day, tissue box and pieces all over the floor. Not once, not twice, not three times, maybe four or five or six times. Containers full of bite marks at the corner of the backyard. He just keeps doing it. Only recently, uh, George, we thought he was getting better, uh, and he never did this, but in the past few weeks, George, he's been running to our ensuite, grabbing the toilet paper roll, and runs with it all over the house. We thought George was growing, learning, maturing, but George always does something to prove us wrong. Well, as we come to Nehemiah 13... Uh, the people at the end of chapter 9, they made a promise to live for God. In chapter 10, we see promises related to holiness, including provisions for the temple and purifications of the people. At the end of chapter 12, we see these promises being followed through. Verse 47, And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, these are promises in action relating to the provisions for the temple. And it continues in today's passage, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Verse 3. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Here we see the promises relating to purification in action. At this stage, things seem to be looking good. God's people seem to be getting it. They've grown. They've matured. They've learned. They've followed through on their promises to live God's way, to live holy, set-apart lives for God. But as we keep going this morning, remember George. Remember his cute face. However good God's people look now, God's people will always do things to prove us wrong. We see this in verse 4 to 29. Now we see these events beginning to happen, and it happens after Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem uh, to visit the Persian king. But when he returns to Jerusalem, things are a mess. The firm promises were not being actioned. All the hard work had been undone. And I've divided this section into three areas where holiness is compromised. And the first section is in verse 4 to 14, and it starts like this. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, 
and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where he had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Well, how does Nehemiah end? Well, this section suggests it's not that great. Can you imagine if uh, we rented out the side office of the church to some satanic cult fundamentally opposed to God? Well, this is kind of what happens here. Somehow, Tobiah, a foreign guy, an enemy of God's people and work, he twisted enough arms to get an office at the heart of holiness for God's people in the house of God, in the heart, the center of Jerusalem, a large chamber in the temple. And after all the promises about provisions for the temple, all the provisions stored in this chamber had been cleared, not just cleared, but cleared for God's enemy to dwell in the house of God. You see, holiness is compromised. And when Nehemiah returns, he confronts this compromise. Verse 6. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Nehemiah here, he's a bit reminiscent of Jesus clearing out the temple. Uh, he calls it as it is evil, perpetuating unholiness and compromise. And Nehemiah, he writes the wrong. He works holiness. He ensures God people walk God's ways. And the section keeps going. In verse 10 to 14, that starts like this. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. About two chapters ago, chapter 10, 29, God's people said, we will not neglect the house of our God. But in the midst of this Tobiah kerfuffle, Nehemiah, he finds out that the temple workers were being neglected too. Provisions were not being given to them. People weren't giving, and the offerings weren't coming in. You see, giving is a holiness issue because the provisions helped the temple of God, the holy temple, to function. And it was so bad that these Levites had to flee to their fields outside of Jerusalem to make a living instead of working the temple. So Nehemiah confronts this in verse 12 too. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them 
in their stations. And as a result of this, verse 13, the offerings, the provisions come in, and Nehemiah also implements a framework for the offerings to continue. Verse 13, he does what every Baptist does. He makes a new committee, a new management team, including a priest, a scribe, a Levite, and a singer, all the interested parties to ensure that the provisions kept coming. And the section all related to Tobias evil, the chamber and the provision issues, it ends like this. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This ending gets repeated a few times in this chapter, and I always thought this could be a bit cynical from Nehemiah patting his own back, but reading this now, I think it shows Nehemiah's single-minded focus. He administers unpopular reforms, but he does this not for his own sake, but for the sake of holiness and faithfulness to God and simply wants to hear God's well-done, good and faithful servant at the end. Well, as we keep going, now we come to the second section. Uh, it's from verse 15 to 22. You can see the start at the end and the end of each section have the same or similar words, and it relates to holiness in terms of purity and the Sabbath. Well, even before the exile, uh, there was a growing impatience with observing Sabbath. In Amos, it talks about traders being unhappy about the Sabbath uh, and the shutdown of business because of it. Even in Jeremiah, just before the exile, foreign traders were pouring into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So it's disappointing, but it's not surprising to read what's happening here in verse 15. It says, In those days I saw Judah people, I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. How does Nehemiah end? Well, this section suggests it's not great either. You see, Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest dedicated to God. Every Jew knew this from the Ten Commands of Moses. But here, in this picture, people are working. People are trading. Foreigners were pouring into the city to trade on this holy day, and Jews actually encouraged this. And just as before, Nehemiah confronts this in verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? 
Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Here he confronts the upper-class leaders. He reminds them God's people didn't observe Sabbath before, and look what happened then, the exile. And they're doing the same thing here again. They even just promised against it in chapter 10, verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bringing goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any or on a holy day. You see, they compromised Sabbath, meaning that they compromised holiness again. They weren't living set-apart lives for God. And Nehemiah, he resolves this too. Verse 19, he takes it on himself. He closed the city gates so the traders couldn't get in. He stationed his own guards to monitor this. Verse 20, 21, he got rid of the traders. And it sounds like he's having a tanty. But this, I think, is divine anger moved by holiness. Verse 22, he gets Levite guards to purify themselves and guard the gates. Another symbol towards the significance of holiness. Holiness for God's people. Set apart for God. And verse 22 ends with another similar section marker. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So we keep going. Now we come to the third area of compromised holiness. We remember in the covenant renewal in chapter 10, verse 30, they said, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We remember in the beginning of today's chapter, the people see the command of holiness in not marrying foreign women, and the people obeyed this. Well, here, even that which we read right in the beginning of this chapter is undone. Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So how does Nehemiah end? Well, this last section suggests it's not great either, because these promises that they made towards holiness, they're in ruin. The Jewish men are marrying foreign women. They're not set apart for God. The holy people were being corrupted. And while the concern here is a practical one about language, it's about much more than that because for the kids of mixed marriages where one spouse was already a foreigner not worshipping God, to, you, to lose your language, to lose your culture, your ability to understand the law of God, all of these losses ultimately lead people away from God and towards the idols of the nations. And Nehemiah, he confronts this too. Verse 25, he sounds like a madman. He goes to extreme lengths. But he's fighting for holiness. He's publicly shaming these Jews who intermarried 
and he's making Jews promise not to let it happen again. And he makes this argument in verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Even Solomon, this great guy, God's king, he succumbed to sin through intermarriage. And his sin ultimately led to the breakdown of this nation of Israel. How could possibly these Jews who weren't Solomon do the same thing, knowing what happened before, and think it's okay? And if that wasn't enough, compromise in holiness through foreign marriages, it had seeped into the heart of God's people, God's priesthood. Verse 28. One of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. You see, reading this would have horrified the readers. Priestly families, they were to marry from their own tribe, Levites, to keep their pure genealogy. But the high priest's grandson, he married, not a Levite, not an Israelite, but he married Sanballat's daughter out of all people, a Samaritan whose dad, Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, had opposed God's people all through Nehemiah's time. You see, from verse 4 to 29, we get this list of areas where God's people compromised in holiness, from temple purity and provisions to the Sabbath to intermarriage. And yes, Nehemiah confronts this here, and he resolves the compromises. But I think we're still left with the question, what happens after Nehemiah is gone? Are the people in themselves truly capable of reform? Because the odds are in the favor of the people sinning again, compromising holiness, breaking promises, and living outside of God's holy ways. Well, as we think about God's people constantly compromising in holiness, if you remember George, we think he's learned something, but sooner or later, he proves us wrong. Well, we're like George, if left on our own regarding holiness. Just like God's people in Nehemiah's time, we make efforts to be holy, only to prove ourselves wrong, because our hearts are marred by sin. Rules and reform on our own can only take us so far. 
They're just band-aid short-term fixes ready to come off. You see, we need a real solution to our unholiness. Something more than rules, something that doesn't spring from our own selves. We need someone or something to change our hearts. Just as Ezekiel says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, the heart of sin, and give you a heart of flesh. A new heart, that's what we need. A new heart that's pure, cleansed, holy and righteous, not marred by sin. A new heart that's able and empowers us to live holy lives for God. So how does Nehemiah end? Well, I think it ends longing, waiting for a solution to our unholiness. It's waiting for a new heart. On the words of Jeremiah, a new covenant. Well, hold that thought as we look at the last two verses of the book. About a month ago, the Reserve Bank of Australia, Philip Lowe, the boss, resigned after leading the RBA to increase the interest rates from 0.1% to 4.1% over the last two and a half years. It hurts, and whether rightly or wrongly, over the past year, he's portrayed himself as one man, Philip Lowe, battling rising inflation in the Australian economy. Well, as we read the last two verses here, as we reflect on the book as a whole, Nehemiah, he also portrays himself as one solo, lonely figure, all by himself, one man striving to bring holiness to God's people. Verse 30, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, And I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I, not the repeat of I, provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. You see, this is a summary of Nehemiah's legacy. And note, it's nothing to do with the wall. It's to do with three things, and they're all about holiness, cleansing the people from everything foreign, establishing the temple workers, and ensuring the offering provisions were there. You see, Nehemiah ends, I think, on this ambiguous note of one man, one solo, lonely figure striving to bring holiness to an unholy people. So we've seen that Nehemiah 13, I think it's not really a happy, high, joyous ending. But if anything, it's ambiguous, a bit sad, anticlimactic, and waiting for something more, longing for something to come. These two threads we've seen in Nehemiah 13, first the people, God's people, 
and the constant problem of compromised holiness. And the second thread is Nehemiah and the picture of one man striving to bring in holiness. At the end of Nehemiah, and really the end of the Old Testament, these threads are here, waiting for a resolution. They're begging for a solution, an answer. And the solution to this doesn't happen in Nehemiah's time. We wait, wait, and wait, through 400 years of divine silence after this happens. And then we get to the first words of the gospel writings, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, Jesus is the answer to all we find in Nehemiah 13. He's the one who solves the problem of humanity's compromised holiness. And he's the true Nehemiah, the one man who truly brings holiness to God's unholy people. And Jesus, he resolves these two threads through the cross by taking our dirty, sin-filled rags, getting rid of them, paying the penalty for sin on our behalf, and he gives us clean, pure, and righteous clothes, making us holy before God. You see, Jesus brings holiness to us. Or to use the words of Ezekiel, Jesus on the cross replaces our sinful hearts of stone with new, holy, spirit-filled hearts. These lyrics sum it up well. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed it white as snow. You see, in this way, Nehemiah points forward to trust in Jesus, to trust in Jesus' saving sacrifice to be made holy before God to be given a new heart filled with God's Spirit so then we can live holy lives for God. Holy living, not dependent on ourselves alone, not dependent on what we do, but holy living made possible with Jesus who provides us with his perfect holiness, who gives us the real ability to live holy lives before a holy God. You see, Nehemiah 13 shows us that we need a solution to our unholiness. And Jesus, he's the one man who truly brings holiness to us. But as we finish off this morning, Nehemiah 13 also suggests that we as God's people, as God's holy people in Jesus, we're still to live holy lives today. You see, God cares about how we live. And from Nehemiah, we are to live uncompromisingly for God. We're to do this not in our own strength, not moralistically, not legalistically, 
but a graced, a grace-fueled holiness, a holiness empowered by Christ in us. So let me ask you today, how's that going for you? Is holy living on your agenda today? Are you pursuing holiness in your thoughts, your emotions, your behaviours? Where do you struggle with holiness? Is holy living on your agenda today? Here's a list I found of what holiness might look like. The mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. The eyes turn away from sensuality and shudder at the sight of evil. The mouth tells the truth and refuses to gossip, slander, or speak what is coarse or obscene. The spirit is earnest, steadfast, and gentle. The soul rests and rejoices in Jesus at all times, the highs and the lows, the goods and the bads, the valleys and the troughs. The muscles toil and strive after Christ-like virtue. The heart is full of joy instead of hopelessness, patience instead of irritability, kindness instead of anger, and humility instead of pride, and thankfulness instead of envy. The body is pure, being reserved for the privacy of marriage between one man and one woman, just as God created. The feet move toward the lowly and away from senseless conflict, divisions, and wild parties. The hands are quick to help those in need and are ready to fold in prayer. Are you pursuing holiness? What's going well in your pursuit of holiness? Praise God for this. Where are you struggling in holiness? Be real about this. We hate talking about our weaknesses. But we know that we're all works in progress, in practical holiness. We're all still growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. So reflect on this. And once you've done this, the solution isn't just to try harder or set a reform. The solution is to run to Jesus. Remember that he has made you holy and let the love of Christ fuel you to holy living. Well, as we finish our time in Nehemiah, if Nehemiah is about holiness, then holiness isn't about being inside a rebuilt wall or a church building. Holiness is about personal and spiritual renewal and living. Holiness is won by and made possible 
in the saving work of Jesus, the one who wins holiness. And God wants us to live holy lives for him today. Let me finish by paraphrasing the words of Paul to the Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus, who has made you holy, to present your bodies and your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father God, you have made us holy in the saving work of Jesus. He took our dirty rags and gave us radiant white garments. Father, we thank you for this great exchange. And Father, help us to live in light of this, to pursue holiness, to grow in holiness, to be your set-apart people in Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.